Well, good morning, church. Good to see you. Good to be together around God's Word this morning. We'll be looking at a passage in Mark in a moment. There was an uh, elementary school in Arizona, and they were having this problem with students throwing rocks. At every recess, they'd be throwing rocks. And so the principal made an announcement over the intercom warning students that anyone caught throwing rocks would be taken home by him personally. Anyone throwing rocks would be taken home by him personally. Later that day during afternoon recess, the teacher noticed a kindergartner throwing a rock. She went up to the student and said, didn't you hear what the principal said this morning? The teacher asked in disbelief. Yeah, replied the proud little boy, grinning from ear to ear. I get to go home with the principal's car. Well, I think the warning kind of backfired. What the principal thought would deter wrongful behavior only invited this little boy to continue in it. The boy's actions were opposed, really, to common sense that would say going home with the principal is not a good thing. And what most would see as a loss to this little boy was a gain. The principal's appeal was to common sense, and the little boy just turned it on its head. And have you noticed as we've been working through this sermon series and follow me, that Jesus constantly turns things on its head. We're constantly challenged to reframe our thinking about doing what is natural. Jesus' words are not easily understood in an instinctive way. It's what we would call counterintuitive or a paradox. Like the more you drink, the thirsty you are, or the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know, or the only certainty we say is that nothing is ever certain, right? That's a, that's a paradox. Well, have you noticed how Jesus was often intentionally paradoxical? How often we see his listeners throughout the Gospels walking away from his teaching, scratching their heads, trying to tie together some dangling loose ends. And isn't that really the greatest paradox of all time? The truth that the God who is holy other came near to us by taking on a human body. Is there any greater mystery than that? I mean, I always get nervous about those people who say, no, I got it all figured out. No, you don't. Once you do, you've reduced God to a manageable place. One person, 100% divine, 100% human at the same time, yet without sin. And it's 100% true. Well, we look today at a paradox of the Christian life. And so turn with me to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And what we see today in Mark 8, and we're primarily going to look at verses 31 through 38, it could be likened, and we've, I've talked about this briefly one other time, to the terms and conditions. Terms and conditions that we often encounter on our computer screen or anytime there's to be this agreement between a service pro provider and the person who wants to use that service, right? You have to agree to these terms and conditions, and you mark the box and click agree. Often it's merely a disclaimer, especially when it comes to the use of websites. But if you're like me, and like most people, you skim it at best, 
or you ignore it completely and just click, yeah, I agree. Right? This hapless agreement to terms is pretty common. Matter of fact, someone capitalized on that on April Fool's Day in 2010. And a host of UK shoppers were tricked into signing away their immortal souls. <laughs> All because they did not read the terms and conditions, but rather just checked on the box, mark, agree. Jesus here lays down the terms and conditions of service, of discipleship. And if you have decided that you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The following message would appear. I agree to the terms and conditions. And you must click the box agree to proceed. Now, these are not new terms and conditions. They're, they're the same as they've always been. I mean, we might want to play with them and change them around to fit our lifestyle, but that isn't how it works. And so our passage this morning in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is clear about the terms, about the conditions. And I'm going to give you two conditions, first heading this morning if, you, if that matters, but two conditions, two conditions. All right, Mark chapter 8, look at me at verse 34. And if you're on top of your game this morning, you'll figure out the, the conditions. Verse 34, Mark 8. Then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said... If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, before we zero in on those two conditions, I really need to back up for a moment for context's sake. So I want us to go back, go, have your eyes go back to verse 27, the same chapter, Mark 8, verse 27. So we get what leads up to this. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now notice verse 29. But what about you, he says to the disciples, what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? That's a pivotal question. Your very life hangs on how you answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Do you applaud him as a great moral teacher? Is your view of Jesus, uh, he's simply an example that you should emulate? No, this inescapable question is only one acceptable answer, and Peter nails it. Look at the middle of verse 29. Peter answered, you are the Christ and in Matthew's gospel, he records Peter's answer as, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Profound statement from Peter's lips. He is confessing that this Jesus is the anointed one sent by God, that, that he's the Messiah that's promised in the Old Testament. Peter got this one right. Jesus was their Messiah. He was sent by God to deliver his people. He was the one who would sit on David's throne as king. Peter got it. Well, least in part. We might say he was in the right church, just in the wrong pew. Because Jesus makes a stunning prediction here. Verse 31, I'm not going to read it, but you can see it for yourself. Jesus lays out what this Messiah would go through, that he must suffer many things, that he must be killed. Now these are words that Peter and his disciples did not want to hear because their picture of the Messiah 
was one of ruler and king, one who would now come and defeat all injustices, defeat all evil. The disciples had no place in their theology for a suffering Messiah. So, Peter sets Jesus straight. Verse 32 says, Peter took Jesus aside, began to rebuke him. Again, Matthew lets us in on what Peter said to Jesus. He says, never, Lord, this suffering stuff, no, 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 no. This shall never happen to you. What a bold statement from Peter. Can you imagine correcting Jesus? And now verse 33, Jesus turns, notice this, and he looks at his disciples you see this? Not just Peter. He looks at his disciples because they all thought the same thing. I mean, it's, it's pretty handy to have an open mouth insert foot Peter around. Right? He can say what you're thinking. He'll ask that dumb question. Like, yeah, well, can't believe he asked that one. But I'm glad he did because I was thinking the same thing. Now it says Jesus rebuked Peter. A rebuke, very strong word. It's what Jesus did to silence the demons. And these are not very nice words from the lips of Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. Jesus showed Peter, he showed us, that there are only two ways of looking at things, God's ways and man's ways. And when man's ways are opposed to God's ways, it's the same thing as being on Satan's side of things. You ever thought of that one? Jesus sets Peter straight. There had to be a cross before a crown. There would be pain before there's gain. There would be a price to pay before the glory. And it's right here. It's right here that Jesus turns to his disciples. And he says, oh, by the way, following me won't be like this pleasant afternoon walk. If you follow me, here are the conditions. Here are the terms. All right, condition number one. Condition number one, self Denial. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself. Now, what does it mean to deny self? In the original, it is a very strong verb. The thought, the meaning, is to refuse to associate with or to disown. You might recall the time of Jesus' trial, uh, that, that Peter's denial of Jesus he said, he said, what? I don't know the man. He was refusing to be associated with Christ. Now apply that to self-denial. Self-denial then is to declare, I don't know the man. I don't know my old self. I don't know what I used to be. It's saying along with Paul in Galatians 2.20, we have to declare all the time, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's self-denial. Now, self-denial doesn't mean, as some teach, that we must deny ourselves any and all pleasures in this life. If it's pleasurable, oh, I gotta deny it. It's not what it's saying. Sometimes that may be easier. It doesn't suggest at all that we neglect the care of ourselves or we neglect the care of our families for the sake of doing the work of God. We have to avoid the extreme. I think we love going to the extremes because then we have to do what the main message really tells us. Okay, stay over here, stay over here, then I don't have to do this. Because in most cases, come on, the issue isn't really one of those extremes. The real issue for us, me included, we instinctively gravitate toward immediate gratification. 
feeding our own egos, accumulating more and more stuff, and practicing poor impulse control. But church, don't limit this denial just to denial of things. To deny myself means I put to death the idol of me, myself, and I. We give up our right to do things our way. We must deny the very self that we are constantly being told to coddle, preserve, and expand. Very counterintuitive. Very, very countercultural. Because rather than love yourself, pamper yourself, look out for yourself, live for yourself, keep for yourself, protect yourself, pity yourself, please yourself, elevate yourself, and make it about yourself. Christ calls you to lose yourself, consider others better than yourself, give of yourself, humble yourself, deny yourself. How are we doing here? (laughs) You go, let's not even go to the second condition. I got a lot to chew on right here. I'm going to keep going a little bit. You see, a Christianity that says... I can continue what I'm doing with a few adjustments to my life and have Jesus too. It might sell some books. It might fill auditoriums, but it has an appeal to our fleshly desires. But please don't call it following Jesus. Simply adding Jesus to your life, like you might add a good gym workout or fiber to your diet. It's not the terms and conditions set forth by our Savior. See, when following Jesus doesn't change your marriage, doesn't change your business practices, doesn't change your language, doesn't change your view of what is worth pursuing, doesn't change the way you view everything, then you might want to consider if you clicked agree without reading the terms and conditions. Where do we ever come up with the idea? That following Jesus means we merely make a few minor adjustments in our ordinary lives. Len Sullivan, Len Sullivan tells of of how in the late 20s, his grandparents married and moved into grandpa's old family home. It's a clapboard house with a hall down the middle. In the 30s, they decided to tear down the old house and build another to be their home for the rest of their lives. But much to my grandmother's dismay, Len Sullivan says, many of the materials of of the old house were reused in their new house. They used old facings and doors and many other pieces of the finishing lumber. And everywhere my grandmother looked, she saw that old house. Old doors that wouldn't shut properly, crown molding split and riddled with nail holes, unfinished window trimming. It was a source of real grief to her. Because all her life, She longed for a new house. What she got was a recycled old house. When God brings us into the kingdom, the old way of living needs to be dismantled and discarded. When you come to Christ, listen, you don't recycle the old life. He makes everything new. You are a new person in Jesus Christ. The old has to go. So I ask, what is it that you're holding in your hands that you need to let go of right now? Because it's standing in the way between you and following Christ. It's standing in the way of you growing in your faith. What is it? The godly woman, Corey Temboom, comes to mind 
Corrie ten Boom suffered uh, such brutality from the Nazis during World War II. Many of you know her story. She said once that she had learned to hold everything loosely in her hands, for she discovered that when she grasped things too tightly, it would hurt when the Lord had to pry her fingers loose. Know that feeling? What's in your hands? What is it that you're holding on to tightly that is hindering your spiritual growth? Will you disown all that you hold dear, your very life to follow him? Hold on to it loosely. That's one of the conditions. Can you click agree? And someone at the first service said, isn't condition one just enough? Can we do condition two another time? Nope. Condition number two, <laughs> cross-bearing. Cross-bearing. Jesus says, verse 34, still in the middle of the day, if anyone come after me must deny himself, notice this, and take up his cross. And, and Dan uh, touched on this when, when, we looked at, um, when he looked at Luke 14 a few weeks ago. This idea of taking up the cross. So there's a lot of, you might see a lot of overlap as we work through this series, right? That redundancy is good in this case, especially. So what's this business of taking up the cross? What is Jesus saying? You probably heard it said, well, you know, that's my cross to bear. Usually by that you mean, oh, my boss at work, that's my cross to bear. My in-laws, that's my cross to bear. Some physical limitation or some irritant of another person, whatever it might, oh, that's my cross to bear. Is that what Jesus means by this? Is that what would be on the disciples' mind in hearing these words? Probably not. They, wouldn't, they, they would think of one thing, death by crucifixion. They would be very used to seeing a criminal carry a portion of the cross through the public streets on his way to be executed. It was the Romans' way of, of showing all the people that this criminal was submitting, though it be forced, to Roman law. See, to see someone carrying his cross meant this was going to be a one-way journey. He wasn't coming back. And if the disciples could be beamed up to the 21st century, they would be appalled at seeing a gold cross around someone's neck. It would be like wearing a gold electric chair as a necklace. As Dan pointed out, because the cross was a present-day horror. Now, interestingly, Jesus spoke of his death to his disciples. He hadn't mentioned to this point what kind of death. But Jesus would walk these very streets on his one-way journey to his own death. And for Jesus, he was submitting not to the Romans, but to the Father's will. He was saying yes to God the Father. His attitude was not my will, but yours be done. That's what taking up the cross. It, denial is no to self. Taking up the cross, yes to God and his will. Take up the cross means we're deciding that to follow Jesus is a one-way journey. That there's no turning back. Even if persecution comes. Even if one must suffer for being a follower of Jesus. Taking up his cross requires submitting to God's will, even if it's unpopular, countercultural, or even not politically correct. If anyone come after me, Jesus says, he must take up his cross. Now, Joseph Stoll 
defined cross-bearing this way. He said, cross-bearing is a willing predisposition to the inevitability of suffering with Christ and for Christ as we follow him. You see it? A cross is the inevitable result of following Jesus. Now, I don't know what that is. It may be physical suffering for you because you're following Jesus. It may be rejection or opposition for being a believer, maybe. For some in other parts of the world, the cross means what? Death. At the minimum, to take up your cross is to acknowledge that following Jesus will be painful at times. It's to be well aware that there will be some measure of discomfort in following Jesus. It calls us to die to self. In Luke's gospel, we're told to take up the cross daily. And I go, I don't even think that's enough. I think it's hourly. Die to self? Die to using Jesus for my own agenda? I need to do that all the time. Daily, I must put self-centeredness to death. It's not normal. It's not natural. It's not instinctive. But it's necessary as a follower of Jesus. You see, to say I'll take Jesus but not my cross is a deeply flawed view of followership. In August of 2003, there's a true story of the Church of the Holy Cross in New York City that was broken into. Actually, broken in twice. But in this particular case, vandals unbolted a four-foot-long, 200-pound plaster Jesus from a meditation area, taking the statue of Jesus, but leaving behind his wooden cross on the wall. The church caretaker, David St. James, confessed his bewilderment at this. He said, these, these vandals just decided we're going to leave the cross and we're going to take Jesus. We don't know why they just took him. We figure if you want the crucifix, you take the whole crucifix. In other words, if you want Jesus, you take his cross too. Are you inclined to just take Jesus and not the cross? Some people are attracted to the figure of Jesus, but want nothing to do with the cross. I mean, we love the Jesus who forgives us, but not sure about the Jesus who demands we take up our cross. Now, listen, I'm not speaking here of self-inflicted crosses. You know what I mean by that? If you get fired because you stood around talking about Jesus to your coworkers when you should have been working, that is of your own doing. It isn't a cross, but a consequence of a poor work ethic. If people avoid you because you're like a bull in a china's closet, that is not a cross. It's a consequence of bad social skills. If you continually get pulled over for speeding, that is not a cross. Oh, it must be my cross to bear. No, that's a ticket to be paid. If you break your hand because in a moment of rage, you smashed it against the wall, that is not your cross to bear. That is an anger problem. Cross-bearing is the direct consequence of a choice to follow Jesus. It begs the question, what difficulties am I facing because I'm following hard after Jesus? When is the last time I was mocked for my faith? When is the last time that following Christ cost you something, a promotion or, or a vacation or popularity. I wonder, wonder with me, 
Can we truly say that we're carrying our cross if it doesn't cost us anything? Work it out. I mean, shouldn't it at least make us uncomfortable? As I know the sermon is. Two conditions. Deny self, take up the cross. Now, the sequence of Christ's words here is significant. First, deny. Secondly, take up. One cannot take up his cross if he hasn't first denied himself. There must be a letting go of one thing in order to pick up something else, right? I cannot pick up the cross if my hands are full of myself. Self-denial and cross-bearing, those are the conditions. Have you clicked agree? We now come to the basis of these two conditions. I call it here, twist of irony. A twist of irony. It's the paradox of the Christian life. Verse 35. Jesus says, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see it? Save, lose, lose, save. Either this or that. And sadly, we have created this Christian culture that says you can have Christ and you can have your life as you want it. That Christianity is a both and deal. I don't see it. It's either your life as you want it or his life. It's either or, not both and. It's the paradox of the Christian living. Jesus' deliberately paradoxical statement here, dying, dying, he says, is the secret to really living. You see, we find that giving up our lives gives us the life we so desperately wanted. Let me say that again. We find that giving up our lives gives us the life we desperately wanted. And yet we're a product of our culture. We're told especially in America. We're told that having it all, gaining everything this world offers, that's life. Jesus begs his followers not to trade down in life while foolishly thinking they're trading up. He's saying, don't buy into this gain this, the whole world more for me mentality. You'll only forfeit your soul. You'll, you'll only forfeit your shot at really living and really for, the, for eternity. That's why Jesus poses the question, verse 36, what good is it for a man, for a woman, to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his or her soul? Or what can a man or a woman give in exchange for his or her soul? What an excellent question. He's asking here, does it make sense to have the most toys and gain as much pleasure as possible in this life and lose your soul in the end? He's asking, is that a good bargain? Is that a good deal? Now, Jesus here uses a hyperbole to get his point across because is it even possible to gain the whole world? Who would want it anyway? But if you could gain everything there is to be gained in this world, I mean, all the accolades of praise and all this stuff, not denying yourself any pleasure, would that matter if when you die, that's it? question. Jesus is asking it. You can get mad at me. He's asking it. When Paul McCartney's first wife, Linda, passed away in 1988, 
Newsweek ran an article, in the, longer than what I'm going to say here, but he had th- they had this to say. I wanted to capture this. Newsweek said, McCartney's had all the money in the world, enough to afford their privacy, enough to give them a beautiful view, but all the money in the world wasn't enough to keep her alive. That's Newsweek. You can have it all, only to realize that none of those things will last. Everyone in this room knows we really can't take it with us, right? That old line, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, that's true. How valuable is your soul? What's your soul worth? Well, God thought your soul to be so valuable that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the infinite price because of the infinite value that's attached to your soul. Jesus is worth following and following heart. He's worth giving our whole life for because we find that giving up our lives gives us the life we so desperately wanted. See, when you choose to follow Jesus, we are signing over our house, we are signing over our bank accounts, we're signing over our marriage, we're signing over our children. In the first service, we had a baby dedication. They're signing over their children. They're signing over their future. They're signing over everything we hold so dear, holding it on, holding all on to that loosely. And what you get in exchange is Jesus Christ in a life that's far greater than we can ever grab for ourselves. There was a little boy, and his father visited this country store. And as they were walking out the store, the owner of the store offered the little boy some free candy. He said, reach in, get a handful of candy, the merchant said to the boy. And the boy just stood there looking up at his father. And the owner repeated, no, son, come on, reach in, get a handful of candy. It's free. And again, the little boy didn't move, continuing to look up in the face of his father. Finally, the father reached into the candy jar and got a handful of candy and, and, and then walked out the store ready to give it to his son. And as they walked back home, the father stopped and asked the son, why didn't he just grab a handful of the free candy for himself? And the boy with a big smile on his face looked into the face of his father and said, because I know that your hand is bigger than mine. It's <laughs> a good answer. And I thought, While we grab a hold of everything our hands can grasp in this life, God says, my hands are bigger than that. I want to give you so much more than what you can hold in your hands. What might God want to put in your hand that is greater, more fulfilling, satisfying, eternal than that which we are tenaciously holding on to, which will simply go up in smoke in the end? What are you chasing in this life? That's why Jesus says, verse 38, Jesus says, if anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, I don't believe this is primarily speaking to those times when you lacked courage to speak up for the Lord. We have all had those moments. I believe this is speaking more to a settled inclination of your heart to value the Lord. I believe this is speaking to what is the direction of your life. Are you living to gain as much as you can while you can? Or do you value Jesus Christ above all else? Is that what you're living for? And you go, Pastor, living for Jesus like this, 
That's what you do for a living. It's easy for you. Me? No, no, no. I have to, I have to choose the better job. I need to work at, in this world. I need to get that promotion. I need to provide for my family. Yes, yes, and yes. But listen, this has nothing to do with what you do for a living. This is all about what do you value? It's not about what you own necessarily. It's not about how much money you have. It's not about your ambitions and your goals. It's, it's, it's what do you chase? What do you value the most? Where's your treasure? And listen, you think it's easy? I do this for a living? There's dangers in that. Topic for another day. I hope you get my point. I have to reflect on this too. Because will I renounce the gains of this world? Popularity and, and power and position and prosperity and consider all that a loss for what I will gain by going hard after him, living for him. Jesus lays it all out for us so we don't waste our life and we stand before him ashamed. Teenagers, young adult, career person, seniors, you can live for all the stuff in this world that is eventually going to fade away. Or you can live for treasure that will live on for billions and billions and billions and billions of years. To live for the applause of people in this world, that's not life. To live for as much prosperity in this world, that's not life. What would be your greatest gain is a life lived for Jesus. We will find that giving up our lives gives us the life we so desperately wanted. You see, the call, really, and we all have to work this out personally in our lives. I can't necessarily say what it looks like for you. You can't necessarily say what it looks like for me. But work it out, please. The call is away from self-indulgence to giving your life away for that which will outlast you. It's a call from wastefulness to fruitfulness. It's a call from living only for today to living for eternity. And you know, one of the most loving things I can do for you as your pastor is to call you, as I call myself, to something bigger than ourselves. That's the most loving thing I can do. During the time of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln would attend church in Washington, D.C. And he tried just to slip in quietly with his aide and sit off to the side and listen as the pastor preached God's word. Well, the story's told that on one particular Sunday, Lincoln was at an all-time low. The, the, the war was just tearing the nation apart, and it was ripping at his own soul. He had just lost his own son. So Lincoln slides into this church looking for this church to be that place of refuge. As the pastor finished his sermon and the people began to leave, the president stood quietly, took his stovepipe hat in his hand, and he began to leave. The aide stopped him and asked Lincoln, What'd you think of the sermon, Mr. President? Lincoln answered, I thought the sermon was carefully thought through and eloquently delivered. 
The aide then said, oh, so you thought it was a great sermon. No, no, Lincoln replied, I thought the preacher failed. The aide asked, he failed? Well, how? Why? And Lincoln answered, he failed because he did not ask of us something great. He failed because he did not ask of us something great. Jesus calls us to something great, to live for more than this world. His call is to all. If anyone, anyone, that's you, that's me, we answer the call, we agree to the conditions. Let's pray. Lord, as I said in the first service, it's not an easy sermon to preach or to hear. It's hard to think about how easy we have it sometimes in our, in our walk with you. It's not to say we go after pain and look for suffering. It's to say we're willing to do that. So, Lord, whatever it is that you need to challenge us with today of dying to self and taking up your cross, will you personalize that? Only you can do that to each one in this room. Will you personalize that? So we come to you as we're going to sing, empty-handed, broken, so you raise us up to a life that we desperately want, life in you and with you, for now and for all of eternity. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.